Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. Your hosts are Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. Today's guest is Courtney Nordrum, who is Vice President, Regulatory Counsel, and Chief Compliance Officer at Deluxe. She's based in Minnesota. Here's a couple of other things about Courtney. I got to know her when I started out in compliance, and she introduced me to the compliance people and a lot of people at SCCE that have had a formative influence on me and on so many people. I'm really thank you for that. I'm grateful for that. The second thing I wanted to mention is that she is the first person I heard present about social media and compliance, and she is a key thought leader in this area. And the, when I plan a podcast episode, generally, I ask the guest what the guest wants to discuss. And here, I really just hoped that she would, when I said social media and the online world, I basically said, can we just talk about that? And I really appreciate, Courtney, you agreeing about that and saying yes. And thank you so much. So let's start with you, how you started in compliance and a bit about your background. Sure. Thank you, Lisa, for that great introduction. I think it was probably... 2015, 2016, when we met, and then we did the podcast in Europe and all of those things. Yeah, but I got into compliance really quite by accident. I was working as a consultant for Thomson Reuters, and the person who had the desk next to me just stood up and we were having coffee and said, oh, my brother's recruiting for this position at this compliance organization. Have you ever heard of them? And I said, no, but what's the job? Like, it could be interesting. And it was for running social media at SCCE and HCA. I applied and two weeks later, I got the job. And so that was my real first foray into compliance. I'm a lawyer by training, so I understand how to read rules and laws. But I'll be honest, I had no concept of what the difference between legal and compliance was. And really the important uh, importance of the compliance function. So when I went to CCE, I really had the opportunity in my four years there to learn a ton about compliance and to fall in love with not only compliance, but the people in compliance. I never found any sort of community that is so helpful and so kind and so giving to the community with everything we have. And so not only do I really love the work, I'm a nerd, I like reading rules, I like following rules, but I love the people that we surround ourselves with as compliance professionals. And your role grew at Deluxe. And can you talk about how you ended up there and the business, what they do in your role? Sure. So I started at Deluxe on the compliance team. And I worked on the compliance team for about a year and a half. The compliance chief compliance officer then left the organization, and I took the place of chief compliance officer. Deluxe is an interesting organization. Most people know us as a check printer. So if you've ordered a box of checks and they come in a box that says Deluxe all over them, that's us. We, Our founder invented the checkbook. But since the late 90s, the organization has really started to branch out into other pieces, realizing that checks are not exactly becoming more popular. 
So what we're known for now is checks as well as our treasury management services and data. So we have technically four business areas, three of them being more common and more well-known than the other. The fourth is promo, which is Chinese trinkets that we print on and send them and sell them to small businesses. So it's actual promotional products. But the business itself is really transitioning and we're in a period of transition where we're growing in our payment segments, we're growing in our data segments, and it's really what we're doing and what I get to learn as we grow into these new areas. That's also super interesting for me. Two things that just came to mind about that. One is immediately always makes me think about traveler's checks. When there was a time that you couldn't travel without them is like checks now. It's Mm -hmm. a different thing. And it also has an interesting parallel to Pearson where I work now. And that for years you would look at it in my day and age. These are textbooks. It's the textbook company. But now people are doing so many things online or they're using their iPads or screens. And it's how do you turn yourself into the next generation of education technology? So where when I started, I thought a lot about educational publishing. Now it's more of educational technology, skills for life and workforce. And it's just fascinating to see how businesses grow and adapt to the times. So I think it's super. It's it's a really great opportunity to learn as well. So last year we acquired a, a merchant acquisition business. Deluxe had not done that previously. I didn't have any experience with it. And so I got to ramp up and learn this entire new paradigm of compliance for this acquisition. And now I feel like I'm pretty fluent in it. And so you always get the chance to challenge yourself and learn and grow, which is really important. Yeah, especially I think all of us in that community for that. Now, learning and growing, I'm going to also say we're going to go back to my topic of social media as that never stays the same. It's a double-edged sword. And when we first talked about, when I talked about it with you or thought about it the first time, it was a lot about Facebook, maybe YouTube. Now we've got everything else. You need it, but there are challenges. What do you think for us in the ethics and compliance community, what do you think we need to keep in mind and a double-edged sword? Right. If you've ever seen me present, you'll know I have a slide in my deck and it's like a 200 slide deck because I don't put words on my slides. I just use pictures pretty much. And one of them is a slide that reminds us that you cannot control people and what they do, but you can manage the risk. And so that's, I think, the underlying current and all of the social media policies, all of the ways we try to prevent our companies from being harmed by social media or to promote themselves on social media. It's all about managing the risk. And managing the risk is something that compliance people are really good. Problem is, like you said, in social media, the risk changes every day. I do the social media presentation at least a couple of times a year in different places. And every single time I have to update a giant chunk of the slides because things have changed so drastically. I was at one point really doing a ton talking about Snapchat. When I started, it was really Facebook and you, then Instagram, then Snapchat. <laughs> LinkedIn has always been the professional space, right. but platforms evolve and how people use them has evolved. And so if you're not looking at your social media compliance now at all, you definitely should be. And if you're not reviewing what's happening with your policies, training, et cetera, at least yearly, 
then I highly recommend that folks need to do that because so much changes so quickly in this area. And how do we balance the right for people to be out there and communicate freely on social media, which is important. People use it as a tool for personal expression versus our need to be protecting our organizations and how to, it's a pretty easy question. I figure you'll just have a bullet point or two on it. (laughs) Obviously, here's the answer. Let me just give it to you. No, there, there is no right answer. And I think it depends on the corporation and what kind of business you're in to some extent. It's challenging in that when I first started talking about this to people, it was nearly a decade ago when everybody was still new to it and we were all learning together. Now, although I talk about social media compliance regularly, I don't use social media in the same way I did that. I don't have TikTok for a bunch of reasons, but I don't have it. I haven't been on the platform, but that doesn't mean that I don't understand the risks. And I think the balance is really the same kind of balance that companies struck when they first started doing radio ads or marketing ads or sending mailers. So what tone do you want to give out there? How do you create that tone? How do you have a unified voice? And then once that's determined, training folks on what they can and can't do. So I think there's pieces from many different areas of a company, but to me, it's communication and training is going to be the most effective way to manage the risk. And with that, I think the policies actually work because they change so much. And what do you see as an effective policy out there? And do you have any recommendations on that? And I think for me personally, I think policies are really important, but if we don't train them or make them understandable, that's, it's, you can have the best policy in the world. You can't do anything unless somebody understands it. So how do you make that understandable? And here's your thoughts on that. So policies are essential. Policies are the rules we have that we all have to abide by or we lose our jobs or we get a speeding ticket or whatever. As society, we're used to rules and we know we need to follow them. And if we don't, there will be consequences. So I think we always have to have a policy. You actually brought up an interesting point about examples of policies, Lisa. So the National Labor Relations Board is heavily involved in looking at social media policies of companies Mm -hmm. in reference to the right to organize. So the NLRB makes a lot of decisions that determine what we can and can't put into our compliance, our social media compliance policies. Right now, they have issued what, in my opinion, are licking opinions coming from their counsel that I'm not sure what a good policy looks like anymore. Last year, I would have given you an example. I think it's in the compliance handbook, the SCCE compliance handbook. There is a a sample policy in there. I've got a sample policy and I've got the policy we use, but I don't know if it's good enough anymore. And I don't know if there's anyone to tell me if it is or not. That being said, you should have one. I advocated in my organization that... Our policy should be like, follow all of your our other policies, including the code, make good choices, period. But that's not necessarily doable in most organizations. And so I think it's more about highlighting exactly what you can't do. You cannot share confidential information. You right. cannot share 
um, client names, anything that could be used for insider trading, anything that could be used under HIPAA, et cetera. Those kinds of things that people understand as they work in business, but legislating through policy use outside of those things is going to get you burned. So if someone's allowed to be in a bikini in whatever country, city, or state they're in, and they post bikini pictures, it's probably not on you to legislate as a company if that picture is appropriate or not and relates to how they do their job. And the NLRB protects a lot of freedoms for employees to do many things and say many things on social media and have them protected by the National Labor Relations Act. I'm going to bring this back up in a couple minutes on another point. So spoiler alert. But before I get back to to, to this idea of what you can and can't say on social media, I just I do have to ask you about some of these ephemeral communications. It's such a hard word for me to say, but I am I think all of us and organizations are what do we do with these things like WhatsApp or WeChat? And it's a little different, but it's technology and evolving technology. And how is an organization can you say to people, don't use WhatsApp on your own devices, but yet at the same time, even when we do say don't use that for company business or other things, people may be acting unethically or if they're going if, if they're going to talk about doing something bad, they're not doing it on their work email and they may not do it on their personal, but they have WhatsApp or WeChat or Weibo and it's protected. What are your thoughts about that? Some of the, procl- the statements recently and any brilliant ideas? Because I think all of us are a little brilliant ideas. I don't think so. Some basics, maybe. I think the last fine was like 350 million or something. It was just insane. And it was for WeChat and WhatsApp. Those are, to me, the cases where your policy is going to save you, hopefully, from liability. I'm not your lawyer. So talk to your own legal teams. Do not take this as legal advice. But if your policy is written well and shows and clearly communicates that certain types of communications have to be preserved and in a certain manner, and you've trained on that policy, I would hope that the expectation is that is being followed. Part of the issue is it's really hard to know if it's not because poof, the messages go away. Unless you go back to some server and get a bunch of subpoenas, which the DOJ is happy to do if they're investigating you on this. So I think the first step is having a good policy, training on that policy, and then actually enforcing it. Part of the reason the fines got so large or have been getting so large is that many of these firms have said, oh, they know the policy, they need to follow it. And they haven't done the monitoring and auditing and enforcement pieces to ensure that they're doing enough to make sure it's being followed. So I think the labor and employment attorneys probably have a completely different view of what it looks like to take an employee's phone and make sure that their communications are falling into policy on their personal phones. Yeah. But there is an obligation to monitor what's going on, to be aware of what's going on and to then enforce policies as they apply to what's going on. And I think yeah, that's yeah. the missing link in a lot of these really big fines. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's going to be a challenge also 
in places where it's harder to get everybody on an email or on a team and they get comfortable with using something like WhatsApp culturally, it's another thing. But again, how to handle that, I think everybody, I think that's going to be a, a huge conversation over the next year and already is. Absolutely. And with that, I mentioned a few, we talked a few minutes ago that I was going to come back to this NLRB point and effective communications. And you mentioned, when you mentioned the bikini photos, I'm thinking more of, we can't talk about this without talking about Twitter. What about the first step before we talk about, I feel like it's this year's Activision Blizzard conversation sometimes. Sorry, Activision Blizzard, we weren't forgetting you yet. But I also think that where do you draw the line between somebody putting up their bikini pictures versus some of the statements on Twitter that may not be hate speech or other things, but incendiary and not what you necessarily want out there from someone from your organization, even if they say views my own. So talk about that a little bit, and then we can talk about some other Twitter things. How much time do you have, Lisa? (laughs) We try to keep this to the length of someone's walking their dog. So is this a 19 hour podcast? Because if so, let's all buckle in. Twitter, Twitter, Twitter. So Twitter has never, Twitter has never been without controversy. So it it has not existed without controversy since it started. I think the first tweet was like, I had eggs for breakfast. And then from there, someone called him a name or something. It immediately went into, here's how we're going to stir the pot. Twitter has expanded the concept of trolls and trolling to make it part of the general internet lexicon. So I think there's always been issues. However, with Elon Musk taking it, privatizing it, and then changing a lot of the policies, most notably that the moderation policies, the beasts have really been let out. As far as the NRB is concerned, employees do have a lot of protections on what they can say and do on social media. If I am talking about the conditions of my workplace, for example, I can also insult my boss's mom while talking about that. And the NLRB says that's okay. And so there are really broad protections around that. The piece that there aren't broad protections around, though, are incendiary words. Bad judgment that isn't tied to the workplace in any way and isn't necessarily protected in states that have off-duty laws. So we've also got off-duty laws. So you can't fire in some states people for doing anything that's legal off the clock. But generally, if you're looking and you someone's retweeting a lot of white supremacists, for right. example, they're not saying anything themselves, but their actions are likely to be harmful to other employees who may take that as discriminatory behavior. That's not the legal standard, but I would argue in those cases that they are being discriminatory and promoting hate. The incendiary pieces are, I think, a little bit more difficult. And and this is where you want to get the good labor and employment lawyers to come in and give you solid advice. Because yes, people should be able to say what they want, But no, you can't just say anything without consequences. And everybody who's ever been fired for social media violations goes to the First Amendment. As as I know, First Amendment is only the government. You are not being put in jail for saying what you said. However, you do have to suffer the consequences of your actions. And that, I think, if you're saying things that you wouldn't say in front of your boss, then you may have to suffer the consequences for that. Yeah. 
I think one of the challenges now is that the boss of Twitter will say things sometimes that I don't think anyone, uh, many of us would say in front of our boss or in front of our family or in front of others. And I guess I wanted to talk about that a little bit because their leadership from a ethics and compliance privacy area have left mm-hmm. and went, they're under an FTC decree and they're not one of their approaches as well. We'll let the engineers certify. Seems like pretty much a compliance nightmare and an ethics nightmare to me. What do you think and are there lessons that we should be taking? I don't even know what kind of lesson you get at such a strange situation. So they have an FTC consent decree. I think they've also got three orders from the SEC from when they were a public company about things, rules they had to follow to not violate SEC regulations. So they have been under a lot of scrutiny before. And now with the current owner, who seems to be the person who wants to light the match in the room full of gasoline, yeah. it's going to be even more challenging. One of the things with Twitter that I think we're in this transition time is we're going to see how many people move away and how many people stay and tolerate it. So Mm -hmm. as an optimist, my hope is that the sunlight drives out the darkness. But as someone who's been on Twitter since, I don't know, like 2008, I don't know that's going to be the case. And without any sort of moderation and any sort of limits, I fear that this is going to be a place similar to what 4chan, where people go and it becomes the depths of the internet. And Twitter, something that is very personal to me is the, what I see as blatant anti-Semitism on Twitter for years Mm -hmm. that was allowed to go even under when it was a public company. And so that's one thing that I'm really looking at to say, what happens here? Because they weren't moderating it really well before. And now that they're not moderating it at all, What's going to happen? So I think we're at a cross in the road. And I hope that Elon's better angels prevail in that there has to be some sort of moderation. Or he gets bored. Or he gets bored. Or he is sick of watching the Tesla stock tumble and hires a CEO and goes and does something else, colonizes Mars, something. But because it's... It is so ripe right now to become a tool for good and a tool for evil. And we use it for news, real-time news, quality news, um, customer service. There's so many good pieces about Twitter just as a platform. Exactly. The poison seeps in. It's going to get very dark very quickly, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And you keep looking at some of the other services that are trying to come in and step into the gap. And that's a really hard thing to do either because both the real-time news thing and for me, on a shallow level, oftentimes this is how I keep up with in in the football season the Buffalo Bills. That like I'm happy to go wherever else to do that, but <laughs> but I need to know where that is and know that they'll be there. It's silly things, um, but right. it's, are the people I want to listen to going to be on this new platform? Yeah, and the answer right. right now is no. Yeah. On the other hand, at some point they may leave, and that's mm-hmm. something that we hope or not, or that the Twitter will be what it's supposed to be. The blue check thing seemed very strange to me and remains strange. Now there are two checks. So that was the funniest thing. If you're on Reddit, there was an entire subreddit about people essentially trolling by getting the blue check. Oh, yeah. And it was hilarious that first day to just watch it. 
someone did a Donald Trump and got the blue check as Donald Trump and said things that Donald Trump would likely very never publicly say. Like it was absolute oh, yeah. hilarity that day. And the Elon Musk, the number of yes. people that tried to be Elon Musk. It was really, but I mean, oh, yeah. you would expect that. So yeah. this is what happens. And I guess with that, and now that I've asked you about all those things, is there anything else you want to share or that you think that has been on your mind as of late that you just want to share before we close off? I think that now that we're coming out from underneath what I'll call the blanket of the throes of the pandemic, I'm not going to say the pandemic's over and COVID certainly isn't going away. We realized, particularly in, in Phoenix this year at the CEI, how important connection is. And how important talking to other people and high fives and listening to people is to us as humans and to this community. So I would just implore this community to stay connected and keep listening to the podcasts, read the blogs, like things on LinkedIn, because that's how we lift. That's how we rise the tide to lift all of the boats. And I think it really makes us feel good. I came back from that energized in a way I hadn't been really in a couple of years because we got to see our compliance family. And so whether it's in person or through social media for your career (laughs) and for to feed your extrovert, the extrovert part of your soul, I think connecting with a compliance community is really important. I also think, and I say this a lot, extrovert, introvert, I think for your sort of sanity in this job, Sometimes it's an unusual field because you feel a lot of jobs, you feel your community in your employer. And that's not that we don't have an amazing community in there, but in ethics and compliance, you can talk about, you could say to me earlier in the conversation, I need an example of a policy. And it's nine times out of 10, you can share that because nobody's thinking to themselves, I'm going to hide my, you know, what I think is a good social media policy. I always use records retention as an example. No one's like, it's the greatest ever, but you can't get that in other areas. We're not secrets. And that is so empowering because you're able to talk to people about the bad days or the things you can't share because you deal with a lot of confidential, difficult issues. And while you don't have to talk about those, you feel not alone. And Mm -hmm. I really think that I feel that every time that we do these large events, I loved this past year. I thought they had a great blend. I will say all the good things. The year before in Vegas, I also think was excellent, but we were still in and out for someone like me who really hadn't been with a lot of people in a long time. It was a bit of a like a shock to the system being in a casino it during was, the iHeart was, Radio Festival. <laughs> that was tough for me. I'm glad I went. Me too. But you're right, it did feel different. So yeah, the connecting piece and the sharing is unlike anything. And so we have a lot of tools and we should use them. And if anyone has social media questions, I'm always happy to chat with people about social media and compliance too. I so you're a very active presence with that. So people find you easily, especially on LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn. I think I'm the only person on LinkedIn with my name. I think. I can't imagine my name is all that popular, but. <laughs> there are occasional Lisa Fines, but yeah. with that, yeah, I think you're right. And I thank you for always reminding us of what why we're fortunate, especially at this time of year. I'm really thankful for our community and think of all of that. And I'm thankful for you taking the time. And thank you for that. Thanks to everyone who's listening. And on behalf of the Marry Me, the Compliance Podcast Network, thanks. Have a great day. 
Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.